0: So this is uh, Christianity for Beginners, uh, lesson number five in this uh, seven lesson series. Uh, tonight's a topic, the topic of salvation. And I've mentioned already that this is a, a special group of lessons to introduce the Christian religion to those who may not be familiar with it. And also for those who want just a refresher course about the basic things of Christianity. So far in our series we've discussed uh, number one, belief in God. In other words, why do Christians believe in God? Second lesson, the Christian religion itself. We, we compared the Christian religion to other world religions to see how it was different. What were the advantages of the Christian religion in comparison to Buddhism, for example, or Islam? Then we studied the history and the writing of the Bible itself. How did we get the Bible? How did it come to to us and some of the reasons why we believe that uh, the Bible is inspired of God? And then last time we studied the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ according to what the Bible says about Him? In our lesson today we're going to talk about the subject of salvation the most important issue in the Bible spoken of by Jesus and of course the Christian uh, religion. Now first of all we need to realize that every religion has an idea of salvation. That's not unique to Christianity. Usually uh, salvation, whatever the religion you're looking at, uh, usually refers to some altered or improved state of being in this life, or a new existence of some kind after death. Every religion, um, we have learned, has a different name for salvation. For example, the Taoists call it balance, finding the balance between the yin and the yang. You know, that's the ultimate state of being. Uh, Buddhists refer to salvation as nirvana, The Hindus call it moksha. Islam speaks of paradise. So no matter what other religions call it or describe its experience, however, they all share a similar pathway to their own concept of salvation. Each religion has a, a way to get to that salvation. Each one of them has it. And the point I'm making is it's the same pathway for all of these other religions. In all religions, except Christianity, salvation is achieved by some kind of human effort. For example, Buddhism requires meditation and knowledge, self-denial in order to reach its salvific goal. Islam demands that its adherents practice and maintain the five spiritual exercises, the five pillars, we talked about that, if they wish to arrive at paradise. So these are only two examples, but all other religions, aside from Christianity, demand some form of moral or religious law keeping in order to become worthy or acceptable to a higher power and thus saved. That's one thing that all religions except Christianity share. So the basic basic premise is always the same from religion to religion. Mankind is flawed and subject to death. God or a higher power or a higher force of some kind provides the knowledge and the method to improve this flawed condition and ultimately escape death in some way. That knowledge and method is mediated by religious leaders who teach and maintain the spiritual discipline to eventually be saved? Again, salvation has different names depending on the religion. And then if the individual works hard enough, trains well enough, is zealous enough in his practice of religious customs and rules, he or she will win the prize of salvation. Now except for customs and names, this has been the pattern for obtaining salvation outlined by most of the major religions in the world throughout the history of mankind. They have different names, different practices, different languages, different outfits, you know, different everything, but the pattern is always the same. The way to achieve salvation, whatever you call it, always the same in all of these religions. Christianity's idea and approach to salvation, however, is completely different. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. So let's talk about Christianity now and the issue of salvation. The problem, first of all. Christianity begins with the same premise concerning mankind's general condition than other religions have. Human beings are flawed. They're subject to moral failure and physical suffering, ultimately death. The Bible, which reveals Christianity's view on human salvation, teaches that the source of this condition is mankind's sinfulness. Paul, for example, the apostle, summarizes this idea in his epistle to the Romans when he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There in one verse he summarizes man's uh, condition. And then he declares what the consequences Um, uh, of this sinfulness is. In Romans 6, 23, he says, for the wages of sin is death. What causes death? Sin, sinfulness. Um, In another epistle, John the Apostle this time describes what sin is. He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. In other words, disobedience, breaking of God's law. That's what sin is. And then in the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, Isaiah explains in more detail the effect that sin has on us and why it leads to death. So Isaiah says the following, he says, but your iniquities, that's your lawlessness, your sins, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that he does not hear. So if we were to summarize these few verses about sin and its effect, we could say the following in summary. Sin is disobedience to God's will. Everyone at one time or another sins. This disobedience therefore separates us from God. The word death in the Hebrew actually means separation. It means to separate. You're separated from God. This separation ultimately leads to our physical death as well as our spiritual suffering because our spirit cannot be at peace or experience joy if it is separated from the Spirit of God in whose image it was originally created. Genesis 1 verse 26. So I want to give you a kind of a visual example of this phenomenon of separation and sin and its effect. And for this I need a prop here. So let's say, for argument's sake, that this plant um, is God and His people. Uh, God is the main stem and the people are the leaves that are attached uh, to the main stem. Now we know that so long as the leaves are attached to the plant, they are alive and they produce more leaves and they produce blossoms and so on and so forth. However, if I were to take a pair of scissors and if I were to cut one of the leaves away from this lovely, healthy plant here, what would happen? Well, I could, uh, you know, I would. Uh, look at these leaves and I would say, well this leaf over here, it looks exactly the same as this leaf. It's green, it has smell, it's moist, you know, I can even feel the moisture uh, from the from the stem, you know. But what is it in reality? Well we know that after a, a you know a certain amount of time this leaf over here would start to decay and it would turn brown and eventually you know, just eventually decay, turn brown, rot, and just uh, blow away as dust. Now, the main plant, however, would continue to grow. I mean, this leaf, even though for a moment or two it looks like this leaf over here, eventually this one would die. This one would continue to grow and to blossom. Why? Well, it's simple. These leaves are attached to the stem, which gives it life. These leaves have been cut away they've been separated from the main stem. And so therefore, what gives it life and nutrients to stay alive is no longer there. And so therefore, they die. Well, this is not a perfect example, but it does demonstrate the process that takes place through human sinfulness and the need for salvation. Um, The word salvation, another word for salvation, again, in in the Greek is a rescue. We were born sinless, we're joined to God who brings us into being and sustains our physical and spiritual lives because we're attached to Him. Eventually we sin, we disobey His commands and His laws concerning moral and spiritual behavior. And in doing this, we separate ourselves from Him. Just like I cut away that that leaf from the main stem. We do that when we sin. We separate ourselves from Him. And in doing so, we become subject to further moral decay, physical death, and a spiritual separation from God after death. The idea is, remember I said, this leaf over here, for a time, it, it looks like you know, the leaves that are attached, you can't really tell the difference, only with time this leaf begins to rot and decay. Well, in the same way, when we're separated from God, for a time, we look okay. We're healthy, we're walking around, we're producing children, we're building things, we're happy, we laugh, we have all kinds of activities, but we know the clock is ticking. It's only a matter of time before we start to decay and grow older and eventually, uh, eventually die. So uh, the problem here, of course, is that once we are cut off from God, we don't have the ability to reattach ourselves to Him. And thus we are doomed. Just like the dead leaf cannot reattach itself back to the plant, it is doomed. This is the essential difference between Christianity and all other religions. Let me explain. Other religions believe and teach that human beings are able to reattach themselves to God through some kind of human effort. I repeat that. Other religions believe that they can reattach themselves to God, to the force, to the, to the power, whatever, through some kind of human or religious effort. For, a game, for example, gaining some kind of religious knowledge and insight, or perhaps practicing religious disciplines such as worship or meditation or secret rituals or pilgrimages. Some people try to achieve it through extreme denial of human appetites or food restrictions. Whatever the culture, whatever the tradition or religion, the method is always the same. An attempt to be reunited with God by human effort in order to avoid suffering, death, and the separation of the soul from its natural place with God forever. All right. Christianity, as I mentioned, is unique in that it reveals a method for rescuing man based on God's actions and not on human actions. That's so very important. And so the Bible teaches how God rescues or saves us from the death caused by our separation from Him due to our sins and disobedience. Here's how that works. Number one, God pays the moral debt that we owe Him. Each sin we make, each law we break, creates a moral debt that we owe to God. Why? Because he's the lawmaker. He makes the laws. He's the one who says, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And when we break his law, we owe him a moral moral debt. This moral debt is the cause of our guilt and shame and fear of death and judgment because we know that we're guilty. We cannot repay this moral debt because we are polluted by sin and we can't produce the sinless perfect life required to remove a lifetime of imperfection and sin. So in Christianity what does God do that doesn't happen in other religions? Well in Christianity God Himself pays the moral debt through Jesus Christ. It is in this way that God rescues us. All right. Paul the Apostle explains it in this way in Romans chapter 5 verses 6 to 11. And I read he says for while we were still helpless. Well here's helpless. This is helpless. While we were still helpless unable to reattach ourselves to the stem. Okay, So while we were still helpless At the right time, God died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And not only this but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So Paul explains very clearly and this passage where he explains and points out certain features of the Christian religion. So let me break it down for you a little bit through a question and answer method. Number one, so why did God take on a human form in Jesus Christ? Answer, only a perfect life could be offered for the moral indebtedness of man and only God in the form of man could accomplish this perfect life. You can't offer an imperfect sinful life to pay for the sins of an imperfect sinful life. It doesn't work. You have to have a perfect life in order to substitute for an imperfect life, to pay for those debts. And only God in the form of man could live a perfect life. Another question, why did Jesus have to die in order to obtain this forgiveness for man's moral debt? Answer, death, uh, death rather, was required because according to God's spiritual laws, human sinfulness could only be atoned for through death. That's the only way that you can atone for sin. Somebody say, why? Who thought that up? God did. That's His spiritual law. Where do we see that? Well, let's read Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. It says, and according to the law one may almost say, all things are cleansed, atoned for, made pure with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. That's a spiritual law. That's not a physical law. That's not like a, a scientific law like gravity or something like that. That's a spiritual law. It wasn't made up by human beings. God made this law. I read again, according to the law, meaning God's law, one may almost say all things are cleansed, purified with blood. What does he mean blood? Well, you know, with life, because the life is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, without death, without someone sacrificing their life, he says, there is no forgiveness. That's what the Old Testament is all about. All those animals sacrificed. They were simply a preview of what was to come. The real thing to come, which is, Jesus, which is Jesus Christ. And so a perfect life was required to make up for the imperfect life of mankind that was destroyed by sin. And so God takes the form of a human being, we call Him Jesus Christ, and offers His innocent and perfect life as a sacrifice to pay the moral debt of sin for all of mankind. All right, another question. Well, how does Jesus' sacrifice pay for the sins of everyone? Answer, if Jesus were only a man, even a good and holy man, his sacrifice could atone for himself and perhaps for another person. One man pays for another person. But because Jesus is also God and has a divine nature, the intrinsic value of his life and thus his sacrifice is different. As God, the sacrifice of his divine life is able to pay for the sins of all mankind. Okay, The divine life, the intrinsic quality, value of his life, different than any other life, is such that it is worth the life of every human being ever born. Okay? That's why we needed the divine Son of God to offer the human life. An interesting passage in 1 Peter 3.18. Peter talks about this. He says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God having put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. Another interesting passage in Hebrews 7, uh, verse 25, the writer says, therefore he, meaning Jesus, therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He has an eternal life, he is always able to offer his sacrifice forever for our sins. The value of His sacrifice is such that it pays for everybody's sin forever. Okay. Another possible question. What was the purpose of the Jewish people? What role did they play in all of this? Well, as I've explained in other places, God chose one man, Abraham, and from him He created a special people. He gave them their religion. He gave them a country. He gave them laws and formed their culture and history and their religion. We read about this in the Old Testament. Now the reason for this was to provide a religious, cultural and historical stage upon which he would appear as Jesus Christ. His purpose was to offer his life for the sins of mankind. The Jewish people were the vehicle used to make His human appearance and to be also the first nation to whom this forgiveness would be offered. And then one other question or another question, what is the role of the Bible? Well, the Bible is the inspired account of God's plan to save humanity through Jesus Christ. It records the beginning of the world, but then it focuses in on the forming of the Jewish people, and then it continues to tell their story until the appearance of Jesus and follows with the eyewitness accounts of His death and burial, His resurrection, His ascension. And then the Bible ends with the history of the forming of His church and the spread of Christianity in the first century. Its main theme, however, is the salvation of mankind through Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle summarizes this idea in writing to a young minister when he says the following, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, those are the scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3.15. And so Christianity presents a unique way to deal with the consequences of human weakness and moral failure, not by human effort and religious practice or attempts to achieve moral perfection, but God offers Himself through Jesus Christ as a payment for the death of our sins. Now in Christianity God rescues us from death from separation, from condemnation, because we do not have the power to rescue ourselves. And if you remember anything from this lesson, try to remember the main difference between Christianity and all other organized religions is that in Christianity, God is the one who rescues us. In all other religions, human beings try to rescue themselves with God's help, a very big difference. This is not to say that humans have no participation in the rescue. We do offer something to God, but it's the only thing we truly have to give to God, and that is our faith. It's the only thing that belongs to us that we have to offer. Everything else God gives us. But we own our faith. We own the yes or the no. We own the ability to say, yes to God, I believe, or no to God, I don't believe. That is ours to give. And that's exactly what God asks of us, the thing that we have, uh, the the ability to give Him. And this brings us uh, to the second important teaching in the Bible concerning the subject of salvation. And that is, salvation is based on faith, not human effort. So in Christianity, God does what is impossible for mankind, and that is, pay the moral debt for sin, and man does what is humanly possible. He trusts God. That's what man can do. This is the sum of salvation. God offers man rescue from death and separation caused by sin, and man believes and trusts in God to accomplish this on his behalf. That's the deal. I rescue you. You trust me to do the work." This beautiful reconciliation is described in various ways in the Bible. For example, in Romans 5, 1, Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, that term justified means made right, means made okay, made acceptable, forgiven. It means all those things. So therefore, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In another place, in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If I were to go back to my example of separation, you know, with the plant used a little earlier in this lesson, in Christianity, it's as if God takes the cut off branch and He reattaches it back to Himself. And we know this, people who garden in that, you know, in our little plant example here, see there on that branch there, that little brown thing. People do this with plants and damaged trees all the time. It's called grafting, right? They cut a wedge and they reattach the severed branch or leaf or whatever and they hold it in place with some kind of wrapping In the same way, God grafts us back into Himself and the element that holds us into place, so to speak, is faith. Faith is what holds us and grafts us back into uh, God's uh, God's, uh, life, God's person. This is the key doctrine of the Christian religion. Salvation by faith through grace. In other words, because of God's kindness, His grace, He offers us salvation, rescue, based on our faith in Jesus Christ and not based on personal goodness or human effort. Paul the Apostle says it in this way, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Paul is saying right now, aside from the law and the righteousness of God, His goodness, His right ways, if you wish, have been manifested. How? He's offered us salvation based on faith. That's how right He is. That's how good He is. That's what He's saying here. All right? Of course... There are many facets and details to the Christian religion that I've not mentioned here. But the issue of salvation and how it is produced by God and received by man is the core teaching of the Bible and the Christian faith. Now there are some questions that naturally arise from this teaching and what most of us already know about Christianity. Here's one of the questions. What is faith and what exactly are we to believe? Well first of all belief by simple definition is to accept something as true. That's that's the definition of believing. I, I accept that this is true. That's believing. In Christianity we accept as true that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what we believe. That's what we accept as true. When challenged to believe Peter one of the apostles demonstrated the essence of the Christian belief when he said the following. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16. Now there are many other teachings and details of the Christian faith that one must know and understand and believe. However, for salvation's sake, the essential issue is what we believe about Jesus Christ. Of course, this belief includes our trust that His death pays for our sins and our faith in Him makes us right before God. Okay, that's what we're supposed to believe. Another question. Well what about repentance and baptism? Because the Bible talks about that. Well in the Bible faith is almost always associated and accompanied by repentance and baptism. In the New Testament it is. Repentance refers to a change of heart, a turning from disbelief and sin to belief and a desire to please God. I've mentioned before that repentance is a forward looking thing. When I repent I'm looking into the future. I'm saying in the future this is how I will act. This is how what I will think. This is what I will do. I will not do what I did in the past. That's why repentance isn't trying to go back and fix things. Repentance is looking forward and and, and making a change in the the future. The English word baptism uh, comes from a Greek word which means to plunge or to immerse in water. And so in the Bible those who believed in Jesus expressed that belief or that faith through repentance, that decision to change their ways and baptism, immersion in water. And so when Peter the apostle preached about Jesus' death and resurrection he encouraged people to believe and when they responded to him and asked how they were to do this, this is what he said to them. Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you know we quote that passage a lot here. And one of the reasons we do is because it is the first response after the death and resurrection of Jesus and His ascension. Peter is preaching the f- first sermon, the first full gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost. First time the full gospel is being preached. And the first time he's finished preaching and the people say to him, well, so what do we do now? And his answer is in Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized. That's why uh, 2,000 years later when I'm teaching someone and they're thinking and they say, well, I believe in Jesus. What do I do now? My answer is always Acts 2.38 because my point is, if it was good enough for Peter, As his response to people who are hearing the gospel for the first time, then it's good enough for me as an answer to people who are asking me, well, what do I do now? Yeah, repent and be baptized. In another passage, Paul, the apostle, describes what was said to him before he was baptized by a man called Ananias. It says, now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. To summarize then, God offers salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we accept that sacrifice for our personal sins by faith, that is, by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And we express that faith according to God's command in repentance and in baptism. Perhaps one last question. Who can become a Christian And when can a person be baptized? Jesus answers this question when He spoke to His apostles recorded in the Gospel of Mark. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And so Jesus Himself says that the good news of salvation is for everybody. Everybody, anyone who believes and is baptized, according to Jesus, is saved. No exceptions based on color or race, excuse me, education, gender, social position. However, he also makes clear that those who refuse to believe have no alternative way to be saved. This means that when we come to belief, then we shouldn't hesitate to express that faith in the way that God intended. And that, of course, is through repentance and baptism. So as we close this lesson on salvation, let me encourage everybody hearing this message to believe in Jesus Christ and trust in the way of salvation that only He offers. No one else offers that. And if you've not yet expressed your faith in repentance and baptism, then you need to do so as soon as possible. Okay. well that's our lesson on salvation. Next time we get together we're going to talk about the church. What does the Bible say about the church. All right, that's our lesson for this evening. Thank you very much for your attention.